1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down.
3: They all come from
1: the unknown north Talent, driving, drive and a pride worth paying for But just because they're above the 49th parallel It doesn't mean we shouldn't celebrate them just as well So give it up to these good nuts. Promotion sucks. And they went away, sure would miss them. The Canadian Star System. Hello and welcome to the Canadian Star System, a podcast where we speak with some of Canada's most talented people and try to figure out what makes them so good and what makes Canada so bad at celebrating our own. Each episode, our star will not only shine, but also shine the spotlight on another talent who they think is a star worthy of wishing the best of success. I'm your host, Steve Patterson, and if you don't know me, you're far from alone. I've been a stand-up comedian since 1997, and I've hosted a show called The Debaters on CBC Radio 1, that's Canada's national radio station, yes, we have one, since 2007. And still, when I walk around Canada, it's as if I've gone deep, 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 Undercover. With me, as always, is my producer, who I have coerced into also appearing on air, Diana Francis, who recently won a Canadian Screen Award, which is like an Emmy and an Oscar rolled into one. At least that's what the shape of the trophy seems to be trying for.
3: Hi, Diana. Hello, Steve. I, I know that this is audio, but my Canadian Screen Award is directly over my right shoulder at all times.
1: I, I believe that's part of the contract. If you win it, it can't be more than. <laughs> three meters away from you at any time. Is that
3: right? Uh, yes, and always has to be in a basement office.
1: <laughs> now, I've, I've actually had a chance to host the Canadian Screen Awards uh, industry nights a couple of times, so I have many photos of me with the awards, mm-hmm. even though I've never actually... It looks like I've won several, but I've never won uh, any.
3: If you uh, are with the big statues, that's what I would like to take home, is the ones that come, that are on stage. The, right. the giant, like, 20-foot ones, those are the ones that I really want to get my hands on.
1: I mean, uh, if things keep going the way they are, they might be auctioned off soon. So uh, <laughs> keep, keep your eye out. Let's, you know what? Uh, our guest today is such a personification of what this show is about that I, I'd love to get right to him, if that's okay, Diana, unless you have any, anything else to add.
3: No, we've talked about my biggest uh, achievement in my career so far, so let's move on. <laughs>
1: Perfect. Our guest today is the personification of a true Canadian star. First of all... He is from Newfoundland, where an astonishing amount of Canadian talent is born. He has graced Canadian airwaves for well over 20 years, including his phenomenal run of a weekly show that drew 1 million viewers per week and ran for 15 seasons. He is a member of the Order of Canada, and if he wanted to, could easily be the next Prime Minister. He's Mr. Rick Mercer! (laughs) That's so kind. Hello,
0: Rick. Uh, Hello, Steve. Hello, Diana.
1: Hello. Thank you so much for doing this. And, uh, you know, we're we're hoping that uh, I'm hoping this goes out into the world as the Canadian star system and people do take it as meeting all the personalities we want them to meet. But when I say the title to some people, they do do get the inherent joke in the Canadian star system that we don't really have one. (laughs) Well, what we have had our debates about whether or not we have a canadian star system
0: that's, <laughs> that's gone that's on for 25 years right. which uh or more which kind of tells you the the state we're in i mean canada if you, if you look at you know quote unquote stars in the traditional sense especially in the last 15 20 years we've been knocking it out of the park internationally in uh, in comedy and in music specifically with women but in terms of a domestic star system like People who just basically operate inside of Canada—it's—it's a—it's a, it's a hard old goal. There's no doubt about it. You know,
1: <laughs> and he said that with a Canadian accent, just to really yes. rub, rub <laughs> it in your faces, listeners from elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, you know, I want to start here. There's so many different things I I want to talk to you about, but I remember this. You accepted. It's funny that we started talking about the Canadian Screen Awards because I was I happened to be hosting an industry night when you Mm -hmm. won one of your several Canadian Screen Awards. Uh, Notice, Diana, Rick doesn't feel the need to display them in his in the room that he's in anyway.
0: (laughs) um, not (laughs) not. I have a picture of my grandmother. See, this is
1: just saying this is what makes you you. That's what I'm saying. Look, My
3: grandmother's figure looks a lot like this Canadian Screen Award statue. (laughs) So it's close. Oh,
1: yeah. Spina bifida, unfortunate. Anyway, uh, you said during the acceptance of your of your speech. And I'd never heard anyone say this before, that the show works because you are 100% unapologetically Canadian. That was in your acceptance. And I appreciated that so much because I find that so much of Canadian entertainment and productions are trying to not be Canadian, are trying to say, we don't want people to know this isn't Canada. You've absolutely 100% embrace that and even the term 100 percent unapologetically seems un Canadian because you would think <laughs> you would apologize to an accepted award. But yeah uh, what what can we do to what can we do to change that, the Canadian pride in entertainment, or is it changing now?
0: I don't know. There's a lot to unpack there. The Mercer Report certainly was unapologetically Canadian. Part yeah. of the show was I would say that I mean the, what made the show famous, I think, was uh mostly my travels around the country talking to canadians and yes that could include a prime minister or jan arden or a member of rush but 95 percent of the time it was someone who had never been on television before would probably never be on television again and they might work in a in a recycling plant in calgary that's what people tuned in for it was completely unapologetically canadian but then we also it was like the rest of the world didn't exist i mean you know a number of the. The writers that I worked with over the years, and yes. I remember Greg Eckler saying he couldn't—he couldn't believe. Early on, he—he—he he, he had some idea, and I said, "Oh, that doesn't exist in our world. Like, we're not talking about that." And it was the biggest story in the entertainment <laughs> world. But it was like, "No, no, on this show, that doesn't exist. We right. do, we're just going to talk about Canada." So, if we—if you know—if I—if I was—if Henry and Megan's interview with Oprah was on. Yes, everyone's talking about it, but not on my show. We're going to talk about something Canadian. And that's the universe we operated in. We wouldn't even license music that wasn't Canadian. We just, don't no, find something that's Canadian and we'll make that work instead.
1: Which I love. And what happened with your show that I, to my knowledge, hasn't happened with any other is it was so embraced by Canadians. There was over, you had over a million viewers per week yeah. for, for seasons and seasons. And I think Canadians
0: responded to the Canadianness of it. It's no different than, I think when you you look at a, a six o'clock newscast, the more local you are, the more people in that city will respond to that newscast. And I did that on a national scale. but there's a lot of metrics when it comes to comparing you know what makes a successful TV show. And there is no doubt about it one of the big ones is foreign sales, which I had zero. (laughs) Like no one was gonna buy this show. I mean, why wouldn't I I mean certainly people watched it online all over the world. The Germans loved it when I would go to Algonquin Park or I would be I'd be out in the beautiful Canadian landscape. But but the the you know the rant that I would do, the stories from the desk were just so current and Canadian that it would preclude that. But if you were looking at creating a show that you can sell internationally. One of the things that people sometimes do, and I'm not knocking them because I explored this with a sitcom that I had made in Canada. And my, I had this show called Made in Canada, it was a sitcom set in the TV world. And I had a very powerful television executive sit down and talk to me about our foreign sales. And we were getting foreign sales, but they're basically saying, look, this is it. Don't show the money, never show a cop because it'll look like a Mountie and that will confuse them. Never do a court scene because they will, the lawyers will be wearing robes and that will confuse the Americans. So sit and don't show a flag. So you're essentially creating a Canadian show, except you're going out of your way not to show anything that might say you're a Canadian, if that makes any sense. So there's a couple of different ways to do it. I'm not criticizing anyone. I mean, you know, everyone's got to go their own way.
1: I'm so glad you brought up Made in Canada because there's so much research I could have done. For you, and uh, instead, what I did was I sat down, and I went back and watched a Made in Canada, and then I watched a I I binge watched Made in Canada. I, I, it was such a f- fascinating show that was, uh, to me, it's right up there with with some of the classic TV that's ever been made. Like Ricky Gervais made The Office and made you know six episodes. You are you, you guys did five seasons of Made in Canada, yeah. And we did
0: sixty four episodes.
1: Sixty four episodes, and it was yeah. th- what I didn't know. And this is in the description of what it's what it's derived from. It said it was derived from Shakespeare's Richard III. Is that correct?
0: Well, my character's name was Richard. And, it, <laughs> <laughs> and my character broke the fourth wall, directed, yes. you know, spoke to camera, inspired by uh, the British production of House of Cards, which was inspired by Richard III. But it was so funny. We named the character Richard. And I think I was like second episode in, someone said, well, of course you named it Richard. That's your name, right? I was like, oh, right, that is my name. Because I never think of myself as Richard. Richard, only yeah. as, as a Rick. But uh, yeah, it was inspired by Richard Third, And it changed a lot over the years. The first six ep- episodes, I was very evil. And we opened with a very, very high number. And the numbers went like this. Just like every week. <laughs> and uh thankfully we got renewed but we realized that a the audience wasn't that interested in seeing me be that evil right and also if we did continue and i was continuing with my evil trajectory i would have to become a serial killer so we changed the show (laughs) we changed the show somewhat so it was just more of an office sitcom and uh my character certainly did the occasional bad thing but we we changed the tone of it but that show was sold We, we we managed to sell that that was on pbs and in uh in the United States and we were big in Poland <laughs>
1: <We> <laughs> it were, was in Latin we were... America I did I did the, I did a semi deep oh, dive did do a, yeah, you did I did research yeah. not skinny dipping with Bob Bray but I did a no. little bit of a dive it was <laughs> well, that's called good. It, in Latin America it was called the industry and yeah. in France it was called la loi du showbiz which I <laughs> which <I> could have <laughs> could have maybe it could have been called that here and people would you know you get all the yeah, Quebec yeah. viewers the, but that ensemble cast that you put together, I would I would put up in an acting fight against anybody. Uh, sure, Peter, Peter Callahan, Leah Pinsent, Emily Hampshire, Dan Let. My yeah. God!
0: Oh no, it was wonderful, and everyone is was completely sane, which was lovely because we spent our summers together for you know five years, and uh, everyone was lovely, and it was just a great time. It was a it was a great, th- and we had we had we had guest stars too. We we tried to foster that star system by every week bringing in a guest star and we had a lot of them over the years it was exciting
1: i didn't think about it until you just mentioned it that one of the reasons people wouldn't accept because the first the pilot episode's very very dark i mean and it opens up with with uh you know it opens up with you making out with emily hampshire i think and uh that you know your career could have gone a whole different what you could be you could have been the the matinee Sex idol of Canada, if you wanted to, based on just that opening <laughs> scene, uh, it was, steamy. It I, was steamy.
0: It was steamy. It was steamy. I know it had all. It had everything in it. It was. Uh, <laughs> it was. Uh, I wrote. What was, well, the first six episodes with Mark Farrell, of course, he's right. a great comedy Love writer, Mark. and yep. Mark ran the the writers' room, which was a virtual writers' room. Believe it or not, back then, uh, really? everyone worked. Well, everyone worked remotely, other than Mark and I, and um, it was a phenomenally successful writer's room. One year at the Canadian Screen Awards, we got all the nominations. Um, Literally. (laughs) That's not me, but that's like people like Edward Rich and, you know, other writers. But it was the hardest work I've ever done. It was way harder than the Mercer Report. When I hear of friends starting sitcoms or I'm walking down the street and I see a sitcom shooting all those trucks and all those people running around, I I actually am like, oh God, thank God I'm not doing that. It's just so much work. It's a lot of work.
1: It, that's interesting. And you guys did that all out of Halifax. Was that right on yeah. Barrington Street in the loft? It, it
0: was in an uh, old uh, uh, power plant called Electropolis, which was down on the Halifax waterfront waterfront. Right. And we had the studios, and then there were other areas in the building you weren't allowed to enter under any circumstances, and they were like bolted, shut. And uh, one day uh, one of our locations guys we were shooting something, and you know, he said, "Well, maybe in those rooms, maybe that could be a location." They got the things out and cut the cut the chains, and we opened it up and shone a light in there, and there was like green stuff dripping from the ceiling, <laughs> weird <laughs> black things blowing around. We're like, seal it up, seal it up. <laughs>
1: yeah. Now, uh, well, well, I, I'll go beyond Made in Canada, but I just it is such a great show, and I hope people listening to this go back and watch this uh, because it was satire but man pretty on pretty on the nose as well for how executive life can be in making television not i don't think just in canada but but elsewhere but the the critics obviously enjoyed it because it got all the mm-hmm. all the nominations do you mm-hmm. think now that you've gone through the past 20 years and been on television most of that time do you think that the atmosphere in canadian television has it improved in that time or how has it changed in the past 20 years
0: well there's certainly there's a lot of it and it's very successful there's no doubt about it that uh you know network television is uh, is in serious trouble and and it's being judged in different ways than, than in my time. It always was just the numbers, and now it's the streaming numbers, and now it's the, the reach, and I don't even know how they, they judge that. But obviously, there's a lot of good TV being made, and that's, that's all that matters, and then there's a lot of uh, different kinds of television being made. You know, I watch this show on HGTV called Rock Solid Builds, and it's just these guys from <laughs> Brigus, Newfoundland, who renovate houses around the Bay of Newfoundland, and, and I love that. I mean, when I was a kid, there was no television based in my home province other than regional television. And now I can turn on HGTV and watch the show from there. So, so that's uh, and then there's, of course, there's, uh, there's a network show, Hudson and Rex, which whether you like it or not, is, in, you know, employing lots of people. And it's about a cop and a dog and they run <laughs> around and solve mysteries, which is great. <laughs> the kids love it, apparently. So, uh, yeah, I think it, I think it's healthy. I think it's
1: healthy. I mean, there's, there's no discounting the, uh, the dog's track record of success in Canadian television between yes. Littlest Hobo and now uh, either Hudson or Rex. I'm not familiar with which one is the dog, but it, they're uh, doing well. Uh, doing, dogs are doing okay in Canadian TV. Uh, let's, I mentioned in the introduction that you are a, a member of the Order of Canada. We're named to the Order yes. of Canada in 2014. What does that mean to you as an artist and just as an ambassador?
0: Well, it was something that, it was nothing that I was expecting, that's for sure. And I guess it's one of those moments. I think everyone in show business is the same or everyone in my age is the same in the sense that, you know, you, for most of your day, you don't realize you're as old as you actually are. Like in your mind, you're you're still, (laughs) I'm, I'm 20, I'm 20. And, and if you're lucky to work, you don't really realize how much you've worked or even your body of work. So when it happened. I was kind of like, well, that can't happen. I'm 20, that's very young for the order of Canada. But of course I was in my late forties and I had been working for 25 years. It it meant everything. Maybe this is a Canadian thing, awards, and certainly uh, something like this, which is not an award, but it's a recognition, uh, is sometimes a little hard to wrap your head around because all I ever wanted to do was work. And even though I've managed to work, my entire career. I'm like everyone else. I'm just wondering where the next work is coming from. You know, you bump into Gordon Pinson, and that's that's what Gordon will talk about. But I don't have a job. I'd like to have a job lined up. I mean, he's never wow. not worked his entire life, and that's still <laughs> what he worries about in his
1: 80s. He just wants to keep going. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, he's doing voice work. He's on the voice.
0: He's. His, I called him the other day because I heard his voice on the radio in Newfoundland doing a series of radio commercials. So I was. He's doing that in the pandemic in his 80s. <laughs>
3: So what you're saying is is he's free to be a guest on this show. Yes,
1: (laughs) that's yes. Yes. That's that's what happens when your producer is on there. She's just booking the next (laughs) show. Listen, listen to Rip. We have an Order of Canada holder for God's sake. Pinsent
3: P I N. Okay, Diana.
1: Now, an Order of Canada is a nice a nice segue into where politics and comedy and or performing intersected for you personally. I know that you've always said politics was like your baseball. Growing up, for, yeah. for me, baseball was my baseball and I didn't right. make it. So you win this round, but I didn't make it in baseball. So now I'm doing this. But in lieu of our domestic star system with our with our entertainers, are politicians our stars because we see them every day, our, oh, yeah. our public yeah. office holders?
0: Well, when 22 Minutes started, 22 Minutes actually never had politicians on the show for the first couple of years, really? believe I mean- it or not. I didn't realize that either. And I was there when we created the show. I mean, if you'd asked me, I would've said, oh, they were there from day one, but I'm, I'm writing a book now. So I'm going back and researching how all this happened. And uh, we, were, we were a couple, I think two years in and uh, Preston Manning, who was the leader of the Reform Party came yeah. to, to Nova Scotia to you know, round up uh, voters. And uh, it wasn't during an election bit. And it was just after the election. And I went up to him, I said, will you do this bit with us where I'm going to say, hey, now that the election's finally over, will you appear on this hour's 22 minutes? And Preston did it, but he said, under no circumstances will I appear on this hour's 22 minutes. And the audience loved it. I was like, why do they love it? It's like, because that's our star system. Yeah, Yeah. These people are our stars. And then the very first big star we landed was Mark Delahunty went into the prime minister's office and land-based him. And of course, he was a massive star. But then we quickly realized that, you know, having cabinet ministers on was like having guest stars. And in Canada, it's very much the case that, you know, there's periods of time where if you're, in a, if you're a cabinet minister, or if you're a premier, you're much better known than, you know, people in the show business industry. Yeah. Short answer is yes, there are still. <laughs> it was very right. frustrating Very frustrating when Stephen Harper was in uh, government because he obviously recognized this and he didn't like it. And so uh, he was prime minister for four years and nobody could pick a single cabinet minister out of a lineup. Okay, maybe John Beard, maybe right. Jim Clarity, but other than that, no one. I mean, they got the job and then they were told now go hide. Don't talk were- to anybody don't talk to anyone, don't be seen on television, for God's sakes, don't do 22 minutes or anything <laughs> like that. And uh, so they disappeared for a while, but now it seems to be okay.
1: Now, who of all the politicians that you have gotten to speak to over the years and continue to get to speak to, because I assume as an Order of Canada member, you guys all meet once once a week and there's some sort now of- we ha-
0: Unfortunately, now we have to do it by Zoom. Yeah, <laughs> <But> <laughs> it's yeah. a Zoom call, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Zoom call. I kind of I kind of stopped talking to politicians. Occasionally I did on the Mercer Report, but uh, uh, I, I kind of lost interest in that. You know, they were all good because most of them, you're not going to have any level of success in the world of politics unless you're good at retail politics. And if you're... It, And that's like, you know, the the glad handing and the shaking hands and the talking to the guy next to you on the plane. And you have to be personable. I mean, for most people, they've got to knock on a door and charm someone, cold, on the sidewalk. There are similar type of skills that you need to go on TV and be entertaining for a couple of minutes. So most of them were good, even the pure evil ones. You know, they can if they (laughs) they can charm people. (laughs) So but I you know, my list correction was like the best had the best comic timing. He would be like he would be like, you know, you were doing a sketch with Dan Aykroyd or something. It was just bizarre. Really? Yeah. Not that I've done a sketch with Dan Aykroyd, but <laughs> yeah, he was, just, he was just phenomenal. And it, people like Preston Manning were good because they, they could be self-deprecating. And I think everyone knows you, have, you should be self-deprecating when you're in politics, but very few of them can actually do it because they do have big egos and they, they don't like being self-deprecating, but Preston could.
1: Now, I, I actually watched a segment that you did right after Jack Layton's passing, with, which which put together a segment mm-hmm. with Jack. And you, you actually ate thousand-year-old eggs, I think he called them at his house, yeah. Cantonese cooking or something. Yeah. He, he seemed to me to be just one of the most genuinely personable pol- political figures that, yeah. we, that we've had, just to sit down with and have an actual conversation. Sure.
0: Oh, absolutely. And, and Jack might have gone all the way. I mean, if cancer didn't yeah. take him out, Jack might have gone all the way. And I was uh, I was fortunate enough to spend time on that tour, that, that election. And I went on all the tour buses, but spending the time w- with Jack Layton on his tour bus, and that's when he had the cane. Yes. And you could sense that this was going to be huge for the NDP. And the idea that they would form an opposition was so far-fetched. <laughs> and of course, anytime anyone in the NDP ever sat down and talked about a pathway to power, either in opposition or in government, it never went through Quebec. I mean, that's just never no. ever suggested. And then you could sense that it was happening. You could sense it was happening in Quebec. And you could sense that Jack was could pull this thing off. And I had a sense and other people had a sense that he wasn't that well, that yes, he was recuperating and that's why he was carrying the cane. But you know, sometimes you just have an inkling that this this isn't going to end well, and of course it didn't, and that's a real crying shame because he might have gone all the way based purely on his popularity, not on the platform the NDP weren't supposed to become the leaders of the opposition I mean Quebec went with bon jacques, they liked Jack yeah and uh yeah, he was good, and then of course, you know he had me in his house and and he was also very self deprecating he gave me a tour of his like greenhouse, he was very proud of the fact that it was that's you know right. he was like sending power back up to the grid in downtown (laughs) toronto and stuff and and then he and then he like wanted to show me the balcony and so we're cutting through his bedroom and i'm like oh my god like who what politician let the cameras come into the bedroom i wouldn't let a camera in my house in my living room (laughs) let alone the bedroom and then and then he's like pointing all the things out and i my hand reached out and touched his bed and went like sloosh, sloosh. I was like, "Oh my it's god, a water it's a waterbed!" And Jack's <laughs> like, "Of course, it's a waterbed." I'm like, "Nobody has a waterbed." And if you're in, if you're in politics, that's a dark secret. You don't let people know that you've got a waterbed that's solar powered. Okay. <laughs>
1: He had, he had nothing to hide. And I was living in Montreal yeah. during that time. And all they could talk about was that he rode his bike everywhere. That that's, and that oh, was yeah. enough. That was enough for some of them. There's like, he rides yeah. his bike. He seems like a good yeah. guy.
0: And I was, I was also, I remember, I remember I was talking to them in the kitchen and right behind them out of the blue, a young Chinese man in a towel walked by. <laughs> and I was like, who." Oh. Did, did I just, was that a young Chinese man in a towel just walked by? Jack's like, oh, that's the students in the basement. And it, I'm like, you have students in your basement? And it was, because Jack and Olivia, very early on, uh, you know, through the jigs and the reel, uh, like they ended up. Allowing some students to stay in their basement, and they just never stopped, despite Jack's <laughs> success. So there was always apparently students in the house. That was just part of the 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 house, and you know, and Olivia's mother was in the house. So there was like a you know a, a very you know elderly senior citizen and these young kids in the house that didn't speak English going to U of T. It was a it was a bit of a madhouse, and then Jack and Olivia with the with the. The waterbed. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's this could be a show right here. Jackson a show, Jacks. Yeah. uh you know, yeah. I'm gonna. I have to talk about a side project. Then we're gonna uh, we're going to bring on your your featured guest that you're bringing on uh, today. You one of your biggest biggest projects i guess you call it born from 22 minutes i think but took on a life of its own was talking to americans yeah where you just went down to america and i didn't even realize till i started watching it again it wasn't just general americans you were speaking with you were speaking with harvard professors sometimes and uh and academics and intellectuals and just misstating canadian facts like we welcome on your national igloo and they were full-hearted believing you what was that like what was that like for you
0: well, it was it was a fluke. It was a mistake. I mean, very quickly, I'll tell you. You know, I was shooting in Washington. I never did interviews on the street. And a guy came along, and he was very well dressed. And he looked down at the the case that the, C, the our camera gear was in. Had the CBC logo on it that said Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. And he went Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, <laughs> like it was a question. I said yeah. And he went. Aha, Canada! Like, yeah, <laughs> and then I just thought, do you, you want to talk about Canada on camera? And we interviewed him, and and it worked, and it just took off. And I tell you, it was it was the most fun I ever had. And you know, I, I mentioned how hard made in Canada was. Talking to Americans was the easiest work I ever did. <laughs> and, and myself and two other guys, Jeff Dion and Pete Sutherland great friends. Pete was on camera. Jeff was the producer. We would go to a city, any city at all that we wanted to go to. And the powers that be, the producers, were under the impression that it took a good day and a half to get a segment of talking to Americans. But it really took us about two and a half hours. So we go to Chicago. We get up in the morning. We, we shoot this two and a half hours. Then we go to a ball game. Then we go out <laughs> to eat. And then we wake up the next morning, explore the town. Then we go to the airport and come back and say, oh, god we barely got it made we didn't have time to turn around and i did that for years it was like the best job ever i got to see all of america and you know it was great fun
1: well that's that's it's even better now in my mind knowing that you were able to do that and get in other time down there sure
0: it's not that hard you know you just you would stand on the sidewalk and go you just tell people that Canada is thinking of legalizing insulin and what is their reaction? <laughs> In 20 minutes, you'd have, a, you'd have a pretty sizable chunk, you know, and I'd say, oh, we just finished our railway. And they're like, really? You're just finishing it now? And I said, well, unfortunately, we hired Irish people. And they're like, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, you
1: know. I don't even know what that means. Like, what does that even mean? We hired Irish school. OK, I, I just loved the tags at the end of some of them. And you would say, but you're a teacher here. Yes, <laughs> you're at Harvard. And you've just congratulations on your whatever it was.
3: And now a word from our sponsors. Hey, Steve. Have you noticed that we're like 30 minutes into the show and our listeners have yet to hear a commercial?
1: I did. I did notice that, which makes sense because this is our first episode and we don't actually have any sponsors yet, Diana.
3: (laughs) Yeah, like that matters. If you're a regular listener of podcasts, then you're probably wondering when someone on this podcast will try and sell you a mattress. Well, guess what? It's happening because you need a 100% certified podcast mattress.
1: Podcast mattress? Are you trying to sell generic mattresses right now?
3: I sure am. Why buy a mattress from a store like an animal when you can buy a mattress you've never seen from a podcast you're only half listening to because you're also on Instagram checking to see if your ex is really that happy with his new girlfriend or if it's all just a ploy to make you jealous. Are you okay there, buddy? Sure am. Podcast Mattress is easy to unpack, easier to move, and the easiest of all the podcast mattresses to replace after losing your other bed in a breakup. Plus, if you go online and use the promo code STAR SYSTEM, we'll send you two free pillows. Hmm. One to spoon with so you don't feel so alone at night, and the other to scream into when you realize a pillow is a poor substitute for human touch. Oh, boy. Podcast Mattress comes in three convenient styles. King, Queen, and Jack Layton. Jack Layton? The Jack Layton is a waterbed mattress, Steve. Of course. It's solar-powered, bright orange, and perfect for anyone who prefers to sleep on the far left. <laughs> Plus, a waterbed mattress is the best way to tell foreign exchange students in your basement, your elderly mother-in-law, or your jerk of an ex that you're doing just fine and you're totally ready to get your sexy on.
1: Okay, well, thanks for that, Diana. Can we get back to the show now, please? Yeah,
3: sure. I've got nothing better to do than produce your show.
1: Oh, sorry. We can take a break if you want. No,
3: seriously, I don't. Not until my new Jack Layton waterbed mattress arrives. Then, Mama... She gonna need some a long time. Okay.
2: Hey, it's Sharon. And here's where it gets interesting. Raise your hand if you want salon perfect nails for just $2 a manicure. Yeah, me too. With the Olive and June Manny system, you can say goodbye to expensive services that take hours and hours and love your nails more than ever. I would know. I've been doing it for years. Get 20% off your first Manny system with code PERFECTMANNY20 at oliveandjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. That's PERFECTMANNY20 at oliveandjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20.
3: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. That's greenlight.com slash acast. And now back to the show.
1: Okay, listen, we're going to do a little section that I'm going to call, some would call this rapid fire, but oh, I, th- I think I no. think that's too I think it's too aggressive. So I'm calling this yeah. quick quick questions with Rick. Quick questions. That's all. It's just quick. Okay. A little quick. You don't okay. have to think about these, these are just quick. Well, it's okay. I'm already nervous. It's a softball first one here. Favorite project, I think we might know already, Uh, 22 minutes, Rick Mercer Report, or Made in Canada, of those three.
0: Well, I love all my children, but I <laughs> love the Rick Mercer Report the most. Of course, it's got your name right in it. Okay, that was the correct answer. <laughs> That's right.
1: That was the correct That's answer. right. Uh, favorite Canadian city, Toronto, St. John's, Montreal. Saint John's. Okay. There it is. Yep. You're two for two, Rick. <laughs> yeah. Uh, worst place in Canada to be stuck on the side of the road. I didn't. I would never, ever answer that question. You could send
0: goons in here to smack me around and I would never answer that question. What we did at the Mercer Report, we had, it used to drive the writers crazy. We'd say, celebrate, celebrate, and if we were going to Thunder Bay, we were going to Thunder Bay to show the rest of the country why it's the greatest place on earth and why the people there are the best and why they love it so much. And I would never answer a question like, oh, you know, what's the most stuck up city or, you know, what's the city that you had a bad experience in or anything? I would just wouldn't do that. That's
1: okay. I'll just put Regina. <laughs> now. Um... <laughs> Ask me after. <laughs> I'm yeah, not saying yeah, uh... I'm not dead inside. I mean, I can I can answer those questions. (laughs) Okay. Here's one that's, eh. who is your favorite American? Do you have one favorite American you can name? Favorite American to talk to, let's say, so they don't think it's just based on anything?
0: I'm trying to think, do I have a favorite American? You know, obviously, there's hundreds of Americans that I admire. Um, I'd like to sit down and have a dinner with Barack Obama. That would be pretty good. I met him briefly because I went to one of those speeches. And the ticket I had meant that you could line up and get your picture taken with him for a minute or 30 seconds. And the person who interviewed, she said, and this is Rick Mercer. He hosts a show that's like The Daily Show in Canada. And Barack (laughs) Obama said, hello, and stuck his hand out to get the picture. And I said, yeah, I'm a pretty big deal. (laughs) As a joke, purely as a joke. And he looked at me and I could see him thinking, what kind of person would introduce themselves by saying I'm a pretty big deal? Like, I just thought it was, you're the former president. I'm obviously have a little show in Canada. Anyway, that's my <laughs> Barack Obama moment.
1: I love it. We're going to make that happen. Diana, can you say a uh, dinner with Rick and Barack? Book that somewhere, turn, please. Okay.
0: Chicago. Yeah, Chicago would be good.
1: Rick, thank you so much. You're not going anywhere. I'm just going to segue no. now to your bringing on your featured guest. Would you do the honors? of telling us who we're speaking to next.
0: Well, you asked me if I would, could shine a light on someone that I thought more people should know about. And I said Sophie Butle. Although I was almost reluctant because, of course, Sophie is a bona fide comedy star in her own right. She is. She, is a, she, you know, has a Juno Award for Best Comedy Album, which neither you nor I have. Nope. And she's a great stand-up. And how I got to know Sophie... I was a little bit familiar with her, but I went on a tour of Canada, Just flats comedy tours, myself and Ivan Decker and Deborah Giovanni and Ali Hassan. And we went from St. John's all the way to uh, Victoria. And at the beginning of the tour, opening my hometown, St. John's, Deborah Gi-Giovanni couldn't make it. And so Sophie was brought on for a couple of tour dates. And so... She was walking onto a show that was billed as like Rick Mercer's comedy Night in Canada in my hometown. Like a lot of the people in that room were there. They were my audience and she killed. She just absolutely killed. And and so much so within a couple of uh, shows, it was decided that she would join us right across the country, which she did. And it was so much fun to see her walk out on stage every night. And because for the most part, the people in the crowd or my audience, they might not be that familiar with her. And then when she left, she was a queen. They loved her. And I know that every single one of them will pay to go back and see her on her own. And that's why I'm picking Sophie. because she's And she's just a wonderful person to spend time with. The one thing that we have in common, and we have very little, of course, because I'm old enough to be her father, is that she started in the business when she was very, very young. Yes. And it is evident she is one of those people who there was never any other option to do anything else other than comedy. And the people who make it, and the people who I admire the most are the people that have that drive, or that it could be an illness, I don't know. But uh, <laughs> don't know. so anyway, that's why I
1: chose Sophie Buddy. Well, thank you so much. Hi, Sophie.
2: Hi, I've, I was just waiting to hear how long Rick was going to go on and on about me. Yeah, that was the greatest.
1: I said, Rick, could you give us a brief introduction? And that was <laughs> a Newfoundland I brief knew. introduction. We said Sorry. brief,
2: brief, Rick. <laughs> um, <laughs> but actually, from listening, I think that we have a lot in common, because I also was, was very into politics in high school. And what you guys were talking about earlier, the first politician I got into even in Canada was Jack Layton. But I was already I was working on Parliament when he kind of appeared in high school, but I was working for a conservative MP and I just I I was just trying to get I was just trying to get in the door. Um, (laughs) But we I just I do remember it's so funny talking about how they how Canadian politicians are stars, because I remember being a high school student working on Parliament Hill. And these like very whatever looking dudes would walk around the halls like thinking that they're hot shit, and I was like, oh my gosh, this guy, that guy needs to relax. And they're like, that's the finance minister. And I was like, <laughs> whatever.
1: He's a very big He's deal. Very big deal. Uh, Those are yeah. new shoes. It's budget day.
3: Yeah. Listen,
1: Sophie, I didn't, I didn't, I knew you had Ottawa roots, but I didn't know that you had worked in the in the hallowed halls of Parliament. So that, but this. These questions might take a whole different direction now, but let's start with this. You are the current holder of the Comedy Juno Award. And I say current holder, literally and now she's grabbing older. it. She's yeah. literally <laughs> holding it. See? This is, Diana's got her awards displayed. Sophie's got those. And then Rick's got a picture of his grandmother. That's what we're looking for now. And the flag. And the like flag, Canadian of flag, course. Yeah. And I'm just front, yeah. in front of a wall with nothing. What is it like not not only to be the current holder of a Juno Award for comedy, which was recently reinstated by the awards, but you are the first female winner ever of the Juno Comedy Award.
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean it feels good. I just I still have no money, which is like I really <laughs> thought that it was like some money would follow. But what people don't tell you about awards is that you just you still have to pay rent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. tricky. Yeah. It's tricky stuff.
1: This would be impressive enough to win the Juno Award and be the first female to win the Juno Award to have in your household. On top of that, your boyfriend, young Mace Mm Galoni, also an incredible stand-up, who was also nominated for a Juno Award but didn't win in a previous year, What's uh-huh. that like? On, what's that dynamic like on a daily basis?
2: Well, you know, I just remind him a lot. It's not important who won or who <laughs> lost, but I did win. And, you know, I just I have I have the judo, you know, displayed above our bed in case we ever forget.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so it hasn't changed you at all then?
2: No, no, still humble.
3: Hey listeners, we've been saying that Sophie is the current Juno holder for Best Stand-Up Comedy Album, which was true when we recorded this interview. The 2021 Junos have happened since then, so the new current holder of the Juno Award for Best Comedy Album is Jacob Samuel. Congrats to Jacob on his win. Sophie still has her Juno though. They don't make you give the trophy back.
1: Rick has the story of you uh, going on the Just for Laughs tour, supposed to fill in for a couple of dates. You end up joining the entire Cross Canada tour. The only other tour I know of with you was when you and I played Picto and then Halifax on two consecutive nights. So of those, <laughs> of those two tours, which would you say is more important in your development as a comedian? <laughs> well just to
2: just to quote Rick, I love all of my children so <laughs> I, I couldn't I simply couldn't
1: I guess for you it's more like i love I love my elderly comedy supporters. I guess that's what it's more like for you. <laughs> you you've talked a lot about the challenges facing women in comedy in general and in and in Canadian comedy in particular. Now we like to think of ourselves as a country as progressive, certainly comedians in the field of comedy like to think of ourselves as progressive but not necessarily, not necessarily that. Or do you see something during this time that we're living through now, the pandemic, when there are not live shows? Do you see things changing and being more uh, equal and more opportunities for women in comedy, especially in Canada, coming out of this?
2: I do think there is a change, and, and I think with with all the the streaming platforms, with Netflix, with with YouTube, it's it is easier for people who used to be viewed as as sort of niche comedians to find their own audience and have kind of more regular touring comedy careers because you can find the people who will come out and see you. Whereas when I started in Ottawa 11 or 12 years ago now, I was one of only two female standups. And it was still very much like when I started, it was still very much the mentality that women couldn't do comedy, which is so weird, especially to me, because like, I think for all of us, the first person that really makes us laugh in our lives as our moms. Like moms are so funny. And so it's weird that I, it's not more intuitive for, for women to be comedians. I think it's, it's just natural.
1: That's a really good point. I haven't really thought of that. And my mom is probably responsible for my, my earliest oh, yeah. laughs. My mother, my mother made me laugh and my
0: mother was my most important audience. You learned yeah. that really quick. If you can make your mother laugh. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> you, do, you get to do things your brother doesn't. <laughs> your brother...
1: <laughs> that's, why. why aren't, this might be a huge insight for comedians is embracing the mother fan. <laughs> I think that's a great point. So Rick was pointing out you started young. You started at the age of 15. Is that true? You did your first stand-up set at age 15.
2: Yep. Uh, my mom and it's I used time. to go to Absolute Comedy in Ottawa when I was 14. Every week we would go. And we would watch uh, mostly the Amateur Night just as as a, like a little mother-daughter date. And then after a year or so of watching live, live comedy, it was pretty clear that anybody could do it. I watched a lot of people bomb going to Amateur <laughs> Night. So, you know, I was like, I could bomb. It didn't really seem intimidating. It's like it, people now are like, how would you begin? And I was like, well, I was the best one on the show pretty quickly like it's an amateur nights or a low bar so yeah I just started and never really looked back because I as Rick said, I had no other options because I was a very poor student and um, loved marijuana <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love that that intro you immediately took as a compliment just like me there yeah. was no other no other avenue for her yep. No, I, <laughs> like, I would like. I would no, no. I would like to clarify when I said no other options. There wasn't like
0: post-secondary was not for this girl that's not what I meant. I meant I meant I could tell that she was one of those people who sure, only had sure. was laser mm-hmm. focused on comedy now had you right. wanted to go to engineering I'm sure you'd be building
1: bridges <laughs> as we speak we would be on an engineering podcast right right <laughs> welcome back to Backtrack with Rick Mercer I'm your co-host Steve <laughs> Pence. <laughs> the, a nice overlap, other than the uh, Just for Laughs tour that you guys get together, is, uh, Sophie, you're currently a writer on This Hour Has 22 Minutes. Yes? And so you're mm-hmm. still doing yes. that, right, this season?
2: Yeah, and I had to... Um,
1: Did you know that Rick used to be involved with that show? Did you know Rick used to have no, a pretty big role was, on that show? he was
2: like a cameraman or something. <laughs> That's right, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, no, I actually, I had to get, I had to ask for, for time off because it, our big tour happened during the 22-minute season. And I was pretty nervous because it was it was really last minute I was filling in for Deborah. And, you know, the season had just started, basically, and it's like a pretty good gig. So I didn't want to mess anything up. So the day I had to go ask for for some time off, I wore my tightest shirt. Just like Rick taught me, (laughs) you know, and I I ended up being allowed to do it. And it's, it's, I'm very thankful for it, (laughs) but I do, I love, I love politics and, and I love Canadian politics and it's, it is a pretty cool opportunity. And I have been doing it for a couple seasons now and I feel a lot more, more comfortable writing hyper topical, very week by week stuff. And over the past year, I've been trying to kind of teach myself how to write more narrative stuff. And so it was quite a relief to hear Rick saying that how much harder it is to to make sitcoms and stuff, because I have been struggling. It is so hard. There's all these story circles and diamonds and you have to have the inciting incident and then this a little bit of sea storyline. And it's like. It's just this big math equation. And I just want to go back to writing Tim Horton's sketches now. <gasps> it's so hard.
1: <laughs> I, I see my producer, my producer, I call her, um, Diana, <laughs> chomping at the bit to uh, chime in here, because Diana is one of the hardest working writers in, in Canada and is constantly uh, having several projects in development. And I saw her shaking her head, uh, nodding her head, sorry, not shaking her head at, at the, the work, the process that goes into developing that. And I think that that's another reason that I'm frustrated at the state of Canada not pushing more projects out because there are so many great ones that are being developed and they don't quite get to the end of the development stage. And that is people don't understand the work that goes into creating a a project like that.
3: For sure. I mean, it's uh, I think stand up and improv and sketch, it's a great place to start because you get so acclimatized to rejection, which is exactly what you're going to need when you try to segue into writing scripted sitcoms or content for (laughs) because there's so few, there's so few um, networks to go to. And each network has so few spots. And there are so many of us trying to write these shows. So you do have to get really good at watching the the seeds that you plant uh, in your little uh, you know garden of creativity. Just get stomped on. but you just, you gotta keep planting.
2: Well, I've, I've also been doing my, my own version of talking to Americans by by pitching these narrative shows to American networks and deeply inflating my own career, which is uh, similar to our, you know, our national igloo and stuff is me being like, you've seen the many shows that I host. Um, <laughs> and they're like, yes, of course, big fan. <laughs> <laughs>
1: A, I'm, I'm producing my own show called This Hour Has 23 Minutes, takes it a step further, and I think you're going to love it.
2: Bit edgier, that's right.
1: Rick, is it, are, are you at the point after all this time in your career where you can just go in, you know, you can get the meetings, obviously, you go in with an idea and you go, look, I really want to do this. Let's, let's just do it. Are, are, are you at that stage or, or do, is it still a challenge for you to get something made?
0: I don't know, because when I stopped doing the Mercer Report, I was content not to uh, do another television project. Right. And people actually don't believe that. I think, <laughs> you know, we all have that experience where sometimes you're thinking of an actor and you're going, whatever happened to them? And then you, you look them up and it's like, well, it says they moved to Wisconsin. Well, something must have happened. I mean, why <laughs> wouldn't they?
2: Who would do that? And so
0: I I haven't had the idea. I. It, I, th- I would like to think that if I was passionate about doing something that I could, uh, you know, get the meeting and, and maybe get it made. But uh, I honestly, I don't know. But I think it's always hard. I mean, when I brought up how hard Made in Canada was, as I was saying it, I almost self-censored and said to myself, change the subject. Be- but I felt like, we, you know, we're all, we're all friends here. We're all talking among ourselves. But part of show business is you're not supposed to talk about how hard it is. And you're huh. certainly not, you don't want the audience to look behind the camera and see how hard it is. And obviously, if it's working, it should look easy and it should only look fun. So I don't, I don't know to what extent it's it's helpful in a public forum talking about <laughs> how hard it is.
2: I think it's helpful. I think it's helpful because one thing as creators, whether it be, you know, writers or, or actors or or comedians or whatever, is that sometimes the the creating process can be so uncomfortable. And you think that the whatever product you end up with while you're feeling so uncomfortable has to be bad. And that's not necessarily true. Like you can put in a lot of discomfort and hard work and have something that comes out and looks effortless. Like I don't think I think that that is a good message that isn't coming across that often it's like you don't have to feel great the whole time you're making something for it to feel great to consume it that's a
3: good point I also think that for the I think it's good for viewers to sometimes, you know, maybe maybe take a second and realize how hard it is to make things. I remember going to see one of the Mission Impossible movies in the theater when you could still do that. And it was the one where Tom Cruise was literally hanging off the side of a 747 up to 10,000 feet for our amusement. And my boyfriend said to me after the movie, what would you think of it? And I was like yeah that's okay you want to get some wings like that was my reaction and he hung off the side of a 747 and i'm like yeah it's pretty good yeah. uh, I'm a little uh yeah. thirsty want to get a beer like, that's
1: right that's right we're gonna uh we're gonna kind of start to wrap things up because i know that we have had a limited time today and uh and sophie sophie it's, it's she's probably on her first coffee because she's on bc time I'm, I'm cognizant of that or whatever there, yeah. nope sorry she's on her second thank you <laughs> I will ask this, and I, I wanted to see how the different answers. So I'm going to go with Rick first. Rick, if you had one piece of advice to give to someone thinking about getting into entertainment right now, comedy specifically, what would that one piece of advice be?
0: I'm going to give two. Okay. Uh, the first one is if you can imagine yourself doing anything else, do that, and then just, <laughs> do that, and then play around on amateur night or something. But if you insist on doing it, you have to create. You have to just start creating from day one. So you have to go to amateur night. You have to shoot videos. You have to write columns. You have to create, 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 create content. That's the only way you have any chance of getting any good. And if you can get through that experience of writing those first comic essays and giving them to people and watching them read it, and you can tell they're thinking, God, this is not funny at all, then, uh, then maybe you might make it. Create. That's my that's my short answer.
1: A great answer. Sophie, what do you what do you say to that? Do you have any updates to that?
2: Yeah, I mean what I do, what I would say is just like just at every opportunity you get implied that you're dating Rick Mercer secretly. Right. Because <laughs> people just really people just really love that. They get a good kick out of it. <laughs> um even in we just did this TV thing and Rick was hosting. And I came out and I was like, yeah, I reckon I made out a bit backstage. (laughs) And I'm wondering how much editing power he has over it, because I'm hoping that it gets in. (laughs) But yeah, no, his advice was right. Like, just if you just got to do it, then that's that's the same. I think it's the same thing for anything. It's the same with, with working out or whatever your passion is. You just have to do it and keep doing it. Oh, one one really good quote that I heard was for writers is the worst thing that you write is better than the best thing that you don't write. And that's just about doing it. So it's you know, perfectionism in, in any creative field is is what causes blocks. So you just gotta you just gotta keep doing stuff and that's the only way to get better and it's the only way to find out what your style is. And I want to talk to Rick more about um, Jack Layton's waterbed later. Like, I really don't have it. <laughs> I right. couldn't believe that. That's the craziest shit I've ever heard. Well,
1: you two can do that on your own time. That's a whole different podcast, <laughs> Jack's house. But I, I do want to say thank you very much to both of you for taking the time with us on the Canadian Star System today. I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, this was that fun. was great. Thank you.
3: The Canadian Star System is produced by Diana Francis and Steve Patterson in association with the Apostrophe Podcast Network. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit our website at canadianstarsystem.ca where you can find links to their work and their socials. Speaking of socials, you can follow at Canadian Star Pod and at apostrophepod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our editor and sound technician is Donovan Deschner of Fracture of Femur Productions. Music by Mark Camilleri of Imagine Sound Studios. Special thanks to Terry O'Reilly, Debbie O'Reilly, Callie O'Reilly, and Nancy Patterson, who is an honorary O'Reilly.
1: So give it up to these good nuts Because our self-promotion sucks, And if they are way- Canadian star system,
0: and there was another one in between there. There was another was there?
1: Cats and Dogs. There was a show called Cats and Dogs. That was yes, there. Inspector Cats. He worked with dogs. Oh, <laughs> my boy.
3: You know that that got green led off the title a Just the title. Yeah. Just yeah, the title. You
0: don't need to be in the elevator very long to pitch that <laughs> one. That was, that's, that's a one-four was... pitch.
2: Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water,